Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. The city of Bloomington is making plans for another deer cull at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve. Parks Operations Director Dave Williams secured approval from the Board of Park Commissioners last week for a contract with White Buffalo Incorporated to administer a community hunt at the preserve this fall. Williams told the board the city is well positioned to receive a grant through the Indiana Community Hunting Access Program to underwrite the contract. Parks officials have expressed concern for years that deer were grazing the preserve to the point where many plants could not regenerate. Williams said in 2012, the city's deer task force recommended sharpshooting as an effective method to reduce the deer population within the nature preserve. Since then, Griffey deer culls have met with varying levels of success. We attempted to hold a hunt, in a, two, a, a sharpshooter hunt in 2014. It was not successful, uh, largely attributable to a bounty crop of acorns that kept the deer fat and sassy. Uh, then 2017, we again enlisted the services of White Buffalo, who uh, successfully removed 62 deer from the nature preserve. And then the DNR basically uh, established a program that was uh, less of an emphasis on hired guns and more on public hunting. Mm -hmm. So they established the CHAP hunting program. They provided grant funding support for that program. Unfortunately, in 2018, we did not have enough hunters sign up for the program. So we, again, did not uh, do any deer control last year. Um, we are in the hunt again. Uh, for uh, grant funding in the amount of $25,000, which would come very close to covering the cost of White Buffalo's services. Um, White Buffalo actually was instrumental in helping DNR design the CHAP program. Obviously, we have a long relationship with them. We think they're very capable. They have an impeccable safety record. And if we're not, if we're bringing in the general public, it's going to be critically important that hunters who apply to hunt are trained, vetted, qualified, licensed hunters in the state of Indiana. And that will be one of the biggest uh, duties for uh, White Buffalo to administer, is make sure people are safe while conducting a public hunt in the nature preserve. Williams said under the contract, White Buffalo Incorporated will oversee the recruitment and training of community hunters. And we're also utilizing the services of Ecologic, I believe you may recall some contracts that you have approved, to, to monitor the, uh, the understory vegetation, to do inventories, to get us a before and after data, to hopefully uh, establish that the hunts are uh, helping reestablish understory vegetation within the park. Williams said the city hopes to hold hunts at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve this November. 
The City of Bloomington is looking to create more energy self-reliance by converting composted waste to compressed natural gas. Utilities Director Vic Kelson told the Utility Service Board Tuesday night a Waste and Energy Task Force will first examine the technical merit of the proposal. I will be on there along with Adam Wason from Public Works and Lou May uh, from Transit. Those are the city people and then uh, there are a number of people from IU and other places that will be working on this first phase which is to look at the technical possibilities for using uh, waste sludge from the Dillman plant plus food waste from the community uh, to make natural gas that could be used for powering things like buses or other vehicles or um, um, or working in the plant or helping us run the plant. So uh, that's all starting up now. Kelson said the carbon footprint for vehicles burning natural gas is lower than for those burning gasoline or diesel fuel. Board member Jim Sims asked Kelson about how the compressed gas could be used in the city's current vehicle fleet. To use this material that we'll create as fuel, what conversion is it going to take to turn these vehicles? So what are we going to have to do to make this usable to fuel these? Well, or are we aware of that? That's, that's a big question. Uh, the, the use of compressed natural gas as a fuel for buses and other vehicles, that's a really mature technology, but it would, it's, uh, you really don't retrofit it. You would just include it in the, in the vehicle replacement cycle. As, you move, as we move forward through time. So it would all, you know, the timing of everything has an effect on how the economics work out. In other business, the board approved a $161,000 amendment to its contract with VET, V-E-T, Environmental Engineering, for cleanup of the Griffey Lake Water Treatment Plant. It is the fifth amendment to the VET contract for mercury cleanup at the decommissioned plant. James Hall, Assistant Director of Environmental Programs, said his team is awaiting feedback from the Indiana Department of Environmental Management on their cleanup efforts. The cleanup plans includes ongoing sampling for contaminants. They have till the 24th of June to respond back to us. So we're waiting on that. If, we, if they don't request anything that we didn't already plan for, I'm hoping that we can have it torn down or sold whatever happens with it by the end of the year is what i would hope that doesn't mean we're done with it because they're going to request groundwater monitoring samples we already have those wells in place and the last amendment that we passed the the cost was in there to continue sampling that i think till the end of 2020. hall said the total cost of the vet contract at this point is more than nine hundred and twenty thousand dollars CBU has also had to pay for security at the treatment plant to prevent trespassers from entering and tracking mercury off the property. Last March, the board approved extending its security contract to the tune of $247,000, bringing the cost of the environmental cleanup to over a million dollars. Most K-12 teachers don't teach climate change, yet four and five parents wish they did. This perspective crosses political divides in the United States, according to the results of a new NPR poll. Whether they have children or not, two-thirds of Republicans and 90% of Democrats agree the subject of climate change needs to be taught in the schools. A separate poll of teachers found that they are even more supportive. 
86% agree that climate change should be taught, but so far they are not incorporating it into their curriculum due to external political pressures or lack of resources. These polls are among the first to gauge public, parent, and teacher opinions on teaching climate change to children, to the generation that faces intensifying consequences. This year's prestigious Goldman Environmental Prize has been awarded to six grassroots environmental activists. Called the Green Nobel Prize, the Goldman Prize celebrates environmental activists from each of the six continental regions. In 30 years, 194 people from 89 countries have received the award. This year's prize went to an environmental and human rights lawyer who halted the destruction of Liberia's tropical forest, a conservationist who helped create a large protected area in Mongolia, a biologist who fought off hydropower plants inside a critical habitat of the rare Balkan lynx, a marine conservationist who campaigned to protect the Cook Islands' marine biodiversity, an indigenous leader who led a movement against two hydroelectric projects on a sacred Chilean river, and an activist who led others in halting construction of a massive oil export terminal that would have threatened the health and safety of a small neighborhood in Vancouver, Washington. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm David Lyman. Support for Eco Report comes from Blooming Foods Market and Deli, Bloomington's locally grown co-op grocery since 1976, offering products with a focus on local, fair trade, natural, and organic with support for farmers, producers, agencies, and artisans. Blooming Foods Market and Deli on East 3rd Street near College Mall, West 6th Street near the Courthouse Square, and Shreve Hall on the Ivy Tech campus. Now it's time for Get Out and Hike. This is Get Out and Hike, and I'm Jan Walker. I'm here today with Kate Welch, who's going to talk to us about Pioneer Mother's Memorial Forest, which is a part of the Hoosier National Forest. Kate, thank you for being here today. Oh, thanks for having me, Jan. (laughs) This is so much fun talking about the hikes that my sister and I took a little drive down to Paoli to the Pioneer Mother's Memorial Forest. And my daughter said, what? You're going to drive an hour to go for a mile walk? And I was like, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And we turned it into a tourist adventure. Nice. <laughs> because I because being relatively new to Indiana, I'm not familiar with the territory. So it was it was fun to drive down there and and the forest is a lovely forest. It's some of the only remaining old growth forest in the state of Indiana, actually in the Midwest, I've been told. The trees weren't as big as I expected, but it's never been logged. So mm-hmm. there are lots of trees that have gotten old and died and fallen Mm -hmm. to the ground and there's also lots of trees that have babies so that there's areas where there's a a a larger tree that looks like it's on its last leg but it's surrounded by saplings and there were lots and lots of wildflowers oh i love that so it was a nice walk but when we got past the uh, memorial wall so there's this big stone structure a mile into the trail And it's kind of like there in the middle of the forest. You know, it's got Pioneer Mother's Memorial Forest written on it. 
would you call it um, handicapped accessible? Oh, no, it's not handicapped accessible. Okay, so. I consider handicapped accessible some place where you can take your chair and go along. Well, this trail immediately goes downhill. Okay. And okay. when we first went downhill, it's like, okay, on the way back, we're going to have to come up at <laughs> the very end. How's that going to be? And it wasn't as bad as it, as okay. it seemed like it might be right. when we started out. It, it was like, ah, oh, this is easy. Yeah. Why go to a virgin forest? Well, I wanted to see it personally because I love trees. And it's always been really annoying to me that human beings, for some reason, when they started uh, moving around and taking over areas like the Indiana Midwest and California, the big redwoods, they'd chop all the trees down, burn them. Why did they do that? I don't get it. I just don't get it. A few years ago, my sister came to visit me when I lived in Oregon, and we drove down to the redwoods in Northern California for a couple nights. And in the redwoods, 95% of the old growth of the redwood forest has been cut down. Chop it down. If it's in your way, chop it down. Kill it. And uh, it's not all that different than the Midwest, where it's been reported that when the first European set foot on the American continent, the North American continent, it were trees from the Atlantic Ocean to the Mississippi River. And southern Indiana does have forest cover comparatively. Brown County is pretty well forested. But when you get up to northern Indiana, no, the forest is pretty much gone. And in 1820, it was forested with the exception of the prairie and the wetlands. All right. Well, thank you, Kate. You're welcome. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Norm Holy speaks with Purdue University Extension horticulturist Larry Kaplan. Kaplan talks about white-tailed deer populations and culling as the city of Bloomington considers another deer cull in the Griffey Lake area. This is Norm Holy for WFHB, and today I'm interviewing Larry Kaplan, who is a horticultural specialist with the Purdue Extension program. He's located in Evansville. What I'd like to know would be more of the fundamental stuff, and that is, what is the diet of deer in Indiana? What do they do seasonally? Like in the spring, what do they concentrate on? Well, deer are, of course, plant eaters, and they will feed on whatever is available to them at that particular season. In the early spring, they want to be gorging on anything freshly green. So in the landscape, that's going to be a lot of our um, blooming shrubs, our flowering perennials, bulbs, of course, anything we're putting out in the garden. All of that is just a treat for them after such a long, cold, vegetation-free winter. Now, are they eating buds of redbud trees and stuff like that as well? They'll eat buds. They'll nibble those right off. They graze down to the ground on a number of different bulb plants. Uh, they, they seem to love my wife's daylilies, for example. Other plants they don't particularly care for, and they'll avoid them unless there's nothing else for them to eat. And then they'll eat those because there's just nothing else. They certainly love my tulips. So Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, do they eat uh, morel mushrooms? I don't know if the deer will eat mushrooms. Normally they're going after um, the greenery. It's possible that they may nibble on moss and other undergrowth like that, but I, I don't know if they would specifically target morels. So then in the summer, what's their diet? 
In the summer, they are going to be often seen out in farm fields, especially along the edges. They'll be uh, mostly feeding on soybeans. Of course, they'll, they will keep coming into our vegetable gardens and into our landscapes. They're going to be usually more spread out because there's just food everywhere. But they're going to definitely try to be bulking up as much as they can during the summer months because that's when all the food's available. And then in the fall, are they concentrating on nuts? or In the fall, things are beginning to die down. They're going to be doing some last-minute chowing down of plants. Again, they'll probably be out in the farm fields for the most part. I, I've seen a lot of them chewing on, on soybean plants, so they may be going after the beans themselves at this point. And again, they're just trying to get in some last-minute protein, last-minute carbohydrates to get through the winter. When we have a deer cull, what happens to the habitat? What recovers and what doesn't? Well, any buds that get eaten are not going to be a big deal. The uh, trees and the shrubs will sprout uh, what we call adventitious buds. And these are buds that are not visible until they're needed, and they'll come straight out of the bark. So it's it's rare that you're going to totally kill trees or shrubs from deer browsing, although you could have a situation where all the flower buds have been eaten off. That's only important as far as, you know, landscapes go. Um, in severe situations, though, deer have been known to strip the bark off of trees to eat that, and that could pretty much kill a tree. And those trees will not recover from that kind of feeding. If Griffey, for example, has been overpopulated for several years while well, we've worked through, the city has worked through whether they were going to have a cull or not. So how long will it take for the vegetation to recover to a more natural state uh, now that we've taken out 62 deer at Griffey? I'm, I'm not a forester, so I really couldn't give you a specific on that. But uh, I have seen cases where there has been overbrows, and there could be a number of the smaller shrubs and the herbaceous forbs that just get completely removed uh, due to overfeeding because you've got too many deer in too small an area. And in a lot of those situations, it takes years for those habitats to come back and especially when you consider that there's so many invasive species like garlic mustard and the honeysuckles that will move right in because of this open area. So in, if that happens, it may it may never come back the way it used to be. I lived in Pennsylvania for a number of years, and the woodlands of Pennsylvania are filled with garlic mustard. So I think it's probably from overgrazing, and then that's what fills in the space. Fortunately, we don't have that much here. But I've been in. We have some, but it, it's not as big as in other areas where I've seen it. So I would like to ask you about the weather. We've had a lot of cold weather, of course, to whether it's done anything to help cut back on tick or uh, the emerald ash borer. Mm -hmm. um, I do not expect any real major effect on the winter cold on most insect pests for this upcoming year. Yes, it's been cold, but we had a, a very long, gradual fall. Um, the insects had plenty of time to get into their overwinter sites, uh, some of them overwinter in, in leaf litter, others underground, others in, inside the wood itself of a tree. 
We also had plenty of time for them to uh, produce, uh, basically what insects do is they produce a type of antifreeze in their blood. And so they can survive the winter cold without turning into an ice cube because of this. And we had plenty of time for them to do that before this cold spell hit. So I really don't expect a major effect at this point. It's been a very dry winter that may help with mosquitoes and possibly biting midges this spring, but that can all change depending on what the weather is a month from now. For us city dwellers, do you have any recommendations you'd like to pass along today on preparing for the spring? The main thing I've been getting questions on is pruning. I I personally like to prune after the worst of the winter weather. So we're usually looking at February to do most of our pruning. And that way, if we have had some winter kill, you may be able to see it because the twigs will start being to start shriveling up. They'll be turning black. And so you can prune those out while you're pruning out some of your other uh, defects in, in trees and so forth. I had a friend who just called me. She did a lot of pruning about three weeks ago, and now we had this cold snap, and now she's seeing dead leaves on her boxwoods. So she's going to have to go back out there again after the winter and, and probably prune them a second time. And I, I just hate doing the same job twice. So I prefer to do most of my structural pruning in late winter while the leaves are still off, but the worst of the winter should be over. Do you have any uh, other comments you'd like to pass along to our listeners today? No, I don't think I have anything else that uh, uh, they need to know about. Are you looking for a way to take action on environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headline news stories as well as feature interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. Give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now it's time for In Nature. This is In Nature. From 1931 to 1957, the zinnia was Indiana's state flower. But in 1957, the peony replaced the zinnia. The peony blooms the last of May and early June in various shades of red and pink and also in white. It occurs in single and double forms. It is cultivated widely throughout the state and is extremely popular for decorating gravesites for Memorial Day. Few other garden plants go back in history as far as peonies, which in China have been used and cultivated for over 4,000 years. Moreover, considering the beautiful appearance of their leaves, the limited maintenance they require, and their long lifespan, it is easy to understand why it is so easy to fall in love with these plants. Just by following a few basic principles, they will be our faithful and generous companions for many years to come. Grow peonies in deep, fertile, humus-rich, moist soil that drains well. The soil should be neutral in pH. The soil will benefit from the addition of organic material in the planting hole. If the soil is heavy or very sandy, enrich it with compost. Incorporate one cup of bone meal into the soil. 
Peonies are not fussy, but choose your location wisely as they resent disturbance. Provide shelter from strong winds. Plant away from trees or shrubs as peonies don't like to compete for food and moisture. Space them three to four feet apart for good air circulation. The Peony, Indiana's state flower. You've been listening to In Nature. Now, upcoming events in our listening area. The Greene County Master Gardener's Annual Flower and Patio Show is scheduled for Friday, May 3rd, from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. It will also run on Saturday, May 4th, from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Both days, the show will be hosted at the Greene County Community Events Center. There will be an invasive control workday at Bryan Park on Saturday, May 4th. It will run from 1 to 4 p.m. Get training on identification and control of invasive species. Wear long pants, long sleeves, and closed-toed shoes. Register by contacting Joanna Sparks at sparksj at bloomington.in.gov or call 812-349-3497. Meet at the Bryan Park North Shelter. Spring Mill State Park will host a bluebird nesting box cleanup hike on Saturday, May 4th from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Meet the naturalist at the pool parking lot when you will walk through the dredge field where you will learn all about bluebirds while helping to clean up their nest boxes. The hike is considered quite rugged. Take a Greens Bluff Nature Preserve guided hike in Owen County on Saturday, May 4th from 10 a.m. to noon. The preserve protects a portion of Raccoon Creek with steep hemlock-covered cliffs, broad floodplain forests, and a great blue heron rookery. Wear appropriate clothing and footwear. Please register in advance at Indiana DNR website. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy, Linda Green, Sarah Vaughn, and Wes Martin. Today's feature was produced by Norm Holy. Get Out and Hike was produced by Jan Walker. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Wes Martin engineered today's show. The script was edited by Andrew Brown, Kaylin Huffman-Brower, Sarah Vaughn, and Jan Walker. Executive producer is Wes Martin. Tune in on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. and Fridays at 5 p.m. for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. You can also access news, feature audio, 
in nature and get out and hike episodes anytime at wfhb.org. For WFHB, I'm David Lyman. And I'm Juliana Daly. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.